to verse 26 through 30. Romans chapter 8, 26 through 30. One cliche phrase that you may often hear from people is this. I'll believe it when I see it, right? Maybe cliche is not the perfect terminology for that, but it's often stated, often heard. I will believe it when I see it. You know, we're preconditioned to trust in what we see. It's just the kind of people that we are. It's the nature of who we are. We're preconditioned to trust in what we see, to put our hope in what's right in front of us that we can observe and interact with. So that's why we say something like that. I will believe it when I see it. And yet, it's interesting, at the conclusion of the last passage that we looked at last week, Paul's writing to the Roman Christians. He's writing to those who are walking through very intense seasons of suffering in the midst of a broken, sinful world. And he's speaking about uh, trust's twin, hope. And he's speaking about a hope that is in something that they do what? Not see. He says in verse 25, I'm sorry, verse 24 really, now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we wait for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So the hope that the Christian has, the hope that those who are united to Christ have, is a hope that is unseen by nature. So we have this disconnect already. We are by nature people who believe and hope in what we see, and yet the Christian is altogether different, Paul says. The Christian, altogether, in contrast, is someone who has an unseen hope. A hope that they have to patiently wait for. And I don't know about you, But waiting wears me out. Raise your hand if uh, waiting wears you out. I don't care if you're at the DMV, OIP. I don't care where you are. If you got to wait for something that you long for, it's wearisome. It wears you out. And some of you may be in that place now. Given your current situation, given your struggle and the suffering that you face, you may be waiting For God to move, waiting for God to do something, waiting for clarity, waiting for relief. Really what the passage is talking about is waiting for an expected glory. And you're tired, and you're exhausted, and you're worn out. Waiting can be wearisome. The longer we wait, there's pressure to doubt. Will this ever happen? Will God really do what He said? There's pressure to even deny that this hope is even real, worth holding on to. And yet today, as if we've not already received enough assurance in the midst of our struggle, and in the midst of our suffering, and in the midst of our sorrow, and in the midst of our sin that we still wrestle with, if we've not had enough assurance... As believers, Paul gives us more assurance. Raise your hand today if you could use more assurance. Mine's up right away. I need more assurance that what God said will be, will in fact happen. That we will not just eternally hope for something that is unseen. But someday, we will see it. With our eyes, see it 
how can we have assurance that this unseen hope will be seen? Romans 8, 26-30. Follow along with me. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God abides forever. And all God's people said, Amen. For the first time at Renovation Church, at least in my history, I am asking that someone get me a glass of water because I'm already very dry. Thank you. You can even put it on the communion table for me. That would be wonderful. Reality check right from the beginning for us. The opening words that we read in verse 26 speak to a condition that we all have. And I think it's a condition that we all must admit together, even if it's hard to admit. Okay, here's a reality check for every one of us. We need help. Thanks, brother. We need help. It's amazing how that all works out. Thank you, Matt. We need help. Some of you say, do I need help? Do we need help? And I don't know how uh, observant or engaged you are with what's going on in the life, lives of many people in our congregation, but the truth is, is that over the last six to, to nine months, uh, there have been an intensifying collection of heavy issues that many of our people in this congregation have had to face. Many difficult circumstances that press in on their soul, on their lives. They have faced much. I don't know if you have looked around and done inventory about specific situations that have gone on in people's lives in this congregation. I know it's hard. It's hard for me to get my mind off the mirror and, and look at, stop looking at my navel and just focusing on myself. But if you look across the landscape of Renovation Church, you'll notice that people are walking through some very intense circumstances, very difficult ones, seasons of sorrow and suffering and struggle. Some of us are wrestling with sin and idolatry, and it's heavy. And I don't know if you have observed that, and I think you are. Knowing the way that you have cared for one another through the process, I think you're very well aware And so it's easy for Christians battling in this life, in this broken, sinful world, waiting for glory to feel the weight of that, to to feel overwhelmed and spent by the sheer magnitude of challenges that come at us from multiple directions. Anybody jiving with me yet this morning? Everyone feeling this? It comes at you so fast and so heavy that oftentimes, while you may admit, yeah, I need help, you don't really understand what you need help for. It's so uh, confusing and disorienting that even your prayers seem wordless. Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. I know exactly what Paul's getting at here when he talks about not knowing 
what I need and not knowing what to pray for because life is so fast and confusing and I'm not really secure about my perspective and I hear what my brother or sister is saying and that doesn't really make much sense either. I know that I need God, but I don't know exactly what I need God for at this time. Raise your hand if you know exactly what I'm talking about. Paul is talking about this fact that, yes, we are needing of help. We're overwhelmed and spent. We're not sure what to do. We're not sure what we need. What in the world is going on in my life? What do I need from God? Am I actually going to make it through it? Raise your hand if you're asking those questions now or you've asked them before. I think what I'm trying to do is get people to see that this is going on. This happens. So often we think about the scriptures as so absent and devoid of relevant meaning. It's in a different age of a different time. The words and the phrases and the meaning that is conveyed. But I'm telling you, when I read this, I immediately connect with it. Immediately. I feel weak. And I feel ignorant. And I'm not sure what I need. And yet we come face to face with another reality that is so reassuring that while we need help, it is God himself by his spirit that provides help. Someone say amen to that today. He knows what we need and he provides it. So we may say we need help, but on the other hand, we may say, well, not really, because we have help from God the Holy Spirit. Likewise, the Spirit helps us. Verse 26. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we ought to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself is interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. Jesus talking to his disciples in John 14 through 16. Remember, he's heading to glory. He's going to the cross. And how is he reassuring the disciples as he's saying to them, in a little while longer, you won't be able to see me. And they're starting to freak out a little bit. Because the presence of Jesus is a big deal in the lives of the disciples. What does Jesus say to his disciples? I'm going to send Another one, the counselor, the advocate, as some versions say, the helper. The Spirit is God's helper given to His people. And how does the Spirit help? How does the Spirit come alongside the Christian? He does so by praying for them. Groanings. Where have we heard that word before in this passage? Well, if you go back, verse... My eyes are playing tricks. Oh yeah, verse 22. The whole creation has been groaning together. Verse 23. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruit of the spirits, groan inwardly. And now we see in our blown away by the fact that in the midst of our weakness and in the midst of our struggles and in the midst of our confusion, in the midst of our ignorance, it is the Spirit Himself that is constantly groaning in words that we do not hear or understand, groaning to God, on behalf of the people of God. That right now, in the midst of your struggle, the Spirit of God is helping you. How is He helping you? He's praying for you. He's interceding for you. He's groaning to God on your behalf. And Here's the wonderful thing that is all the more reassuring for us as we wrestle with every conceivable circumstance that we face. as a Christian in this world. We may wonder, will God hear and answer our prayers? 
But we would never wonder whether or not God answers God's prayers for His people. You see, the, the Spirit knows our need, but even more so, the Spirit says that He knows the will of God. There's perfect cohesion in the Spirit's ministry. He knows exactly what I need, and He knows exactly what God's will is. And His groaning and His interceding on our behalf is congruent. There's no disconnect. He gives us what we need, and He prays for us in accordance with the will of God. And hearing that gives us the assurance that God will hear and answer that prayer for you. When you've lost all sense of self-confidence, praise God. When you've lost all sense of your own righteousness in standing in your own prayers before God, that you've earned some right before Him. Phewy. That's good. Because our confidence is not in ourselves. Our confidence is in the Holy Spirit, in His presence in us, and His helping ministry for us. No matter what you're facing today, no matter how hard it is to be a Christian, no matter how difficult it is to hold on to the hope that we do not see, no matter how weary you've become, no matter how confusing it may be, rest assured that the Spirit of God is groaning and praying for you and that the Father hears it. Are you overwhelmed by grace yet? Is this a little too much for you? Good. It's earth-shattering. And it is wonderful. Amen? That's the reassurance to know that we're going to see glory someday. Not our faithfulness per se, but the faithfulness of God put the presence, the Spirit inside of us to help us, to provide the strength that we need to take every step forward toward a glory that we will indeed see one day. What awesome assurance we have. In our pride, we may say we don't need help. That is a lie. And in our self-pity, we may say God would never help me. That is another lie. God is, in this moment, interceding, praying, groaning to God on your behalf. So if you're here today weary, please hear that promise and, and praise God. Praise Him for His help. And part of that is just understanding what's going on in chapter 8. And we could easily miss the whole point that in 20, on 20 occasions in 27 verses, that Paul is talking to us about the Holy Spirit. 20 times in 27 verses. This is about the Holy Spirit's ministry. This is about our need for help and God's provision. That this is who we are. A people that are living in full reliance on God's Spirit. You living today on your own strength? You living today in step with the Spirit in reliance Upon God's Spirit. God may have called you to great things. But He has never called you to something that He has not adequately and abundantly provided for you to walk in faithfulness to Him. Love that about our God. That's what distinguishes Christianity from any, any other religion in the world. That there's a holy God that is transcendent. And yet... He has condescended and come to us and put His very Spirit inside of us and given us the very power and resources necessary to walk in faithfulness to Him. He's not abandoned you. He's provided for you His very presence. This is who we are. God's people live in full reliance on God's Spirit. Amen? Amen. This is who we are. So be filled with the Spirit today. Receive 
the Spirit rely upon Him. He's good and He's helpful. And that's how we know we will one day stand before Jesus Christ and see glory because the Spirit's helping us get there. Not only that, though, there's more. Verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Did you hear what it said? I want it to register for you. And we know. We don't question it. Not for a second. We know. We have certainty about something. Sign, seal, deliver. We know that for those who love God, all things, not some things, not most things, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. All things work together for good. God is actively at work by the Spirit. And He's actively at work in every situation, in every circumstance, in all that we face. He is at work bringing about good for His people. Did you hear that? This is reassurance for the Christian who lives in broken, sinful, overwhelming, difficult circumstances. All things. Well, not the thing I'm going through. All things work together for good. Yeah, but all things. When planes are hijacked, and flown into the tallest buildings in the world. We look at that and say, all things. When an angry maniac shows up at a local school and unloads multiple rounds in a crowd, we can take a step back in the midst of that craziness and say, all things. And when lava oozes out of cracks in the earth, and runs down and ruins homes, everything in its path, we can say, as devastating as it is, all things. When your annual review at work leads to undeserved criticism, or even being fired, say it with me, all things. When your church plant doesn't make it into year three, Maisie, we can look at it and say, what? All things. When your child refuses to obey you, and your teenager yells back and says, I hate you. All things. Yep. When your escrow account is low, oh yeah, and your mortgage payment's skyrocketing, you could say what? All things. Yep. When you're ridiculed publicly, Because you trust in Christ. We can say all things. When you suffer the sadness of a miscarriage, we can say. When your child's born with a developmental disability, we can say. When you're grieved that your siblings don't love or follow Jesus. Like you do. You could take a step back and say, All things. When your wife dies in her 30s and leaves you with four children under eight years old, Jordan Cinziano, what he said was, in tears, he said what? He said, All things. When the doctor tells you they found a malignant tumor in your body. Whether you read Piper's sermon, Don't Waste Your Cancer or not. You can say, all things. When your spouse cheats on you and abandons you. You can say, all things. When someone you love 
dies suddenly, years before anyone would ever expect. As hard as it, hard as it is, we can say all things. When everything seems to be going wrong, when there's so much pressure against us, you can feel the weight of it. You can feel horrible. You can feel hopeless. You can feel the intensity of it. While it may not feel good, and it doesn't, it may not look good because unless you're a moron, it isn't. But here's the fundamental truth that reassures us as we walk through these struggles. There is no situation. There is no situation. There is no suffering. There is no struggle in our lives that are not under the purview of the sovereignty of God. And because of that, all things are required to bow in total submission to God. All things are required to work for His purposes in our lives. And ultimately, all things will carry out His divinely ordained decrees. God is sovereign. He's at work. And at the end of the day, as difficult as our moments may be, and I'm not here to minimize them, all of them get thrown into one river that is rushing toward one end. God's sovereignty for your good. God's sovereignty for one good. His glory. All things work together for the good. How do you know that you will see glory? Because God's working. All things, all circumstances for your good, which is His glory. What assurance that is. How that provides so much meaning for us as the people of God. It brings so much hope and meaning to the momentary difficulties that we face. It's all going to work out for good. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Even the crucifixion, they meant to kill him and end him. But God in his sovereignty, according to his definite preordained plan, used all of it to bring about what? The greatest good possible. All things. All things. If God can use the death of his son to bring about good, he can use any difficulty and evil that you're experiencing today for his good, for his glory and your good. All things. Every circumstance. So if you're wrestling through something difficult, even if you don't feel it, take the hand of your soul and hold on to Romans 8.28 with everything you've got. Just hold it dear and really let it hold you. Let the truth of the Word of God hold you and sustain you. That this will pass. And you will see glory. In fact, God is using this very situation to bring it about. Radical. Again, no other God. It's all the same. <laughs> no other God's doing this. But even so, we ask, well, on what basis can he make such a bold claim? What basis can he make such a bold claim that everything's working together for good? So to this we turn to what many have called the golden chain. Romans 8, 29 and 30. I'll do my best to be brief, but I do not want to be superficial, so bear with me. The golden chain is golden because of its preeminence. The value and beauty of this chain and it's called 
a chain because each link is inextricably linked to one linked to one another. If you lose one, you lose it all. But if you have one, you have it all. Assurance that all things work together for the good comes from knowing that God is finishing the salvation that he started. Simple as that. If I'm getting too deep and complicated, just remember that. Assurance that God, all things work together for the good. Every circumstance in time is because across time, God is finishing the salvation that he started in us. He who began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it. He started it. He's going to finish it. End of story. He started it. He's going to finish it. God is sovereignly orchestrating all things to finish what he starts in us. Verse 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, those people, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, those people, he also called. And those whom he called, those people, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God finishes what he starts. The first link in the chain, really one and two. That opening phrase, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Those God foreknew, God also predestined. Man, oh man, two really fun words, right? Two exciting terms, oh boy, we're getting at it today. Look at, if you get lost in a theological debate, you are missing the point of the passage today. Let's just look at it for what it says and try to draw some conclusions and let's not miss the point of the whole, okay? Foreknowledge, controversial term number one. Simply put, it means to know beforehand, to foreknow, to know beforehand. But understand this, this is not a cognitive knowledge of God. God foreknows something, he knows something beforehand, but he is not Talking about a cognitive knowledge, like I know something. I know that 2 plus 2 equals 4. That's not what the term is getting at at all. It's a personal knowledge. It's a relational knowledge. God foreknew people. He knows people. He knows a people. Personally. Relationally. Not just cognitively. He knew them long before they were. Some would trace it to a a knowledge that is covenantal. That is, he sets his covenant affection upon a people. It's affectionate knowledge. Not just cognitive. Affectionate knowledge. God foreknew someone some people with affection. So as a saint, the significant is this. As someone who knows Jesus, one who has faith in Christ's work and filled with the Spirit, we are so. We are that on the basis of His foreknowledge of us. His affection-setting knowledge of us. That's what it means. We are so on the basis of his foreknowledge of us. This is where it starts. So God in eternity past looks down the corridor of time. And out of his grace and in accordance with his eternal purpose, which we're going to talk about, he knew you. Not just about you. He knew you personally and affectionately. That is jaw-dropping grace for me. Jaw-dropping grace. It's beyond me. 
But what he's saying is, is that those he foreknew, he also predestined. He set in course a preordained plan in those people's lives. Predestined is a preordained plan that God will certainly carry out. And it's a plan applied to people that the text says he foreknew. Ephesians 4.11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things. There it is again. Who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. He set in course a preordained plan in their lives. Well, what is that plan? What purpose is he effecting in people's lives? Well, it tells us. He predestined them to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Man, this gives us a directing purpose for our lives. You ask, we ask all the time, what does God want? We say, he wants to give every man, woman, and child repeated opportunities to hear and respond to the gospel. Someone say, preach. Amen. That's true. But why is he giving every man, woman, and child repeated opportunities to hear and respond to the gospel? Because he wants something even greater than that. He wants to take a a people and conform them to the image of his son so that his son is preeminent. That's the purpose of God. That's what he set out to do in eternity's past. To save a people that he might conform a people to the image of his son. As you consider yourself today, nix all forms of self-actualization, self-fulfillment, becoming the best version of yourself. Fewy. That's secular garbage. The purpose of your life is to be transformed, to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's why God set his affection on you, that you would become like Christ. The glory that you're waiting for, that we long to see, is that not what glory specifically is? That we're like Christ. That we're no longer who we once were. But we've been set free from that. And now, slowly, day by day, God works all things according to His purpose that we might be conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. That is your life purpose. You say, I don't know what I'm here for. That's why you're here. Purpose-driven life? There it is. To be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Have you set that in the, in, the, in the future for yourself? Are you looking toward that? Are you working toward that? Are you pursuing that? Because if you're not pursuing that more than anything else, guess what? You're literally swimming upstream to the purposes of God. And God will work all things to bring you to a place of complete and utter despair and, and, and despondency. He will do everything he can to get you to surrender and just allow his sovereign purposes to be at work so that you are going where he wants you to go, to Jesus, to be like him. But not only yourself. You're, how do you treat other people? How do you view the, the reason they're in your life and you're in theirs? You're in their life and they're in your life to partner with them in the Holy Spirit to help them conform to the image of Jesus. And some of our marriages need to, to wake up to this fact. Like, you don't look at your spouse and try to conform them into your own image to bring you about the greatest amount of happiness. That's not why you're married. You're not married to conform them to your image to make you happy. No, 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 no. You're married to partner with them to work together to pursue the image of Christ in your love, your service, your words, your time, your money. It is all being leveraged to bring about that kind of change because men, at the end of the day, she is not yours. 
She belongs to Jesus. And the only reason you're in her life is so that you can help her meet her man someday. Because that's what life is all about. Conformity to Jesus Christ. What about your kids? They're going to this school. They're going to do that. They're going to play this sport. They're going to be musicians. Man, they're going to be amazing people. They're going to be all that I would ever want them to be. But that is not your calling as a parent. Your calling as a parent is to partner with God the Holy Spirit, to obey Him, and to now come alongside and spur them on so that they become the men and women that God has called them to be, which is like Jesus, not just some superstar athlete. Some would say preach. So stop giving them more opportunities to get better at sports. Maybe it's time that we start investing in their character and spending time with them. And I'm looking in the mirror. I've had it with plexiglass parenting. I'm done. I'm done with plexiglass parenting. The point I'm trying to make is that this is God's purpose. This is God's plan. And it's good to conform to Christ's image. That's what God has for you. And that's why you're in other people's lives. By the way, that's why we're here right now. You're here to not receive religious goods and services, some great message that makes me feel good for Monday. This is about spurring one another on. This is about you helping other people being conformed to Christ's image. That's what missional community is all about. You say, I'm doing good this week. I'm doing all right. I'm doing good in my devos. I don't really need MC this week. Or I don't need biblical community. It's not about missional community, right? It, you're saying, yeah, but maybe somebody needs you. Maybe somebody needs your encouragement. Maybe the strength that you have will help hold up a weaker brother or sister. Because you're consumed with helping people conform to the image of Christ because this is the purpose of God. All of history is moving toward that end. I'm done with predestined. Those whom God predestined, God also called. You know, God called you. I'm not talking about your cell phone. God called you. Those he foreknew, he also predestined. Those he also called. He called you in three ways. He called you externally. What do I mean by that? It means you're hearing the preached word. That means... God put a follower of Jesus in your life to show you the word. Right? External call. You're hearing something from the outside coming to you. It's an external call. Calling. You heard the gospel. Right? It's like, Lazarus, come forth. Maisie, come forth. You're called. You heard something. But not only were you called Externally, you were called internally. And some of you remember that day very vividly. Where you heard this before externally. But then all of a sudden, your heart was warmed. You know what I'm talking about? You heard it, but now you're hearing it. And your heart is warmed. And your affections are changing. And it's almost like earmuffs were taken off. And blinders were removed. And now you're, you're feeling the, 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 and, and experiencing the indwelling nature of God, the Holy Spirit, which is bringing about faith in you. That's internal call. External call, preaching of the word. Internal call, Spirit of God, warming your heart. That external and internal calling is an effectual one. Meaning it does not create a possibility in your life. Maybe, because those whom he foreknew, he pre destined. And those whom he predestined, he what? Called. And those whom he called, he justified. So if God is calling you externally, internally, he is doing so effectually, which means it will bring about what he desires it to bring about. Your faith in Christ. He's finishing what he started long ago. We understand that Romans has taught us very clearly that we are justified. We are declared righteous in God's sight on the basis of the, uh, we're really by faith in Jesus Christ, on the basis of Christ's 
righteousness given to us. He justifies us. And not only that, as now we live as those who live by faith, relying on the Spirit, waiting for glory, the text goes on to say, for those whom He justified, He also what? Glorified. Did you hear that? What is the assurance that we will see the glory that we do not see right now? Well, number one, the Spirit of God is helping us. He's praying for us. He's groaning for us. But number two, He is finishing what He started in us. When God starts something, He brings it to its completion. Those whom He foreknew, He glorified. Don't miss the fact that He speaks about it in the past tense. Has anybody been glorified yet? Jesus. Has anybody here been glorified yet? Blank stares. So in what way would Paul say, for those whom he foreknew, he glorified? What is the point he's trying to make? Speaking about it in the past tense. Again, don't miss the point here. This is reassurance in the midst of a struggle that it is so true that you can speak of it in the past. It's done. It's signed. It's sealed. It's good as done. If God has foreknown you, He will and has glorified you. He finishes what He starts. And so we are a people that live in full reliance on the Spirit until we experience the full realization of all of God's promises. Such assurance for us. Such assurance. Don't miss the point here. I love Christopher Ashe's quote. He says, If in the present time I've been justified, then however terrible the suffering of this present time, I know I am unbreakably tied back to the foreknowledge, predestination, and calling of God, and therefore safely secured to future glorification. Again, a lot going on in our lives. We're safely secured in our anticipation of glory because we are unbreakably tied back. In some ways we get, in this passage, a, a panoramic view of history. See, it's hard for us to see that in the moments of struggle. We're just stuck in the muck, in the mud. And, and this, the only thing we know is what's right in front of us. But this is gracious, Paul's writing, because it helps us to take a step back and see a panoramic view of all of human history and recognize that what God started in eternity past, He will complete in eternity future. In all circumstances, all things, every person whom he has foreknown will in fact experience the full realization of glory. We get to see the panoramic view. Man, that view is so clarifying when suffering gives us an ambiguous picture or a foggy picture. So we live in full reliance on God until the full realization of glory. Assurance. You're going to see what you believe, Christian. You're going to see it. Hold on to that hope. Patiently. Groan inwardly. Endure suffering. Rely on the Spirit. Such reassurance for us as followers of Jesus. I, I tell Doreen this every Saturday night. The sermon's not good enough. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't adequately unpackage and explain the depth and beauty and glory of the text. It's not good enough. And in my soul, I pray that this would, would just grab a hold of me and it would change the way I see the world. And I pray that for you. I long for this in your life, that we would, in the midst of all the silliness of Monday through Sunday and just, just living, that we, this can grab a hold of us 
and set direction for us and change our, our, our mentality and our perspective and provide strength and endurance. This, this should radically transform our life, this passage. This isn't just cute. This is jaw-dropping grace, radically transforming grace. And if there's ever been an evangelistic message, it's today. You who live without God and without hope, you cannot claim any of these things. You're unanchored. You're floating. And so we plead with you, if you have not trusted Christ, do so now. Hear the call. Respond to the call. Trust in Jesus. Be filled with the Spirit. Suffer well and wait expectantly. And know for sure that you'll see glory soon. Because that's what Christians do. They live in full reliance upon God. Until the full realization of glory. Full. Not partial. Full. May this be true of us in Christ's name. Amen. Let's pray. Father, your word is true. Your promises never get old. We've scratched the surface on glorious things. It's my prayer that the Spirit would help us now. Some of us don't know what to pray for. Uh, no, the Spirit is actively interceding on our behalf. We rest in Him. We praise You for His provision. We trust in Christ. We rely upon Him. And we ask that You would just continue to shape us and mature us and conform us and make us into Jesus so that You receive glory and we could see that glory. Oh God, just help us to be enamorated with this stuff. Just, God, just change us, even now. In Jesus' name, amen.